0: We're going to get back into the series, of really the final message in the series. Pastor Den Burrell is going to preach next Sunday, and he's going to correct all the heresy that I have spewed out for the last couple of weeks. So, um, No, he's going to bring balance. He's going to bring balance is what he's going to do, and it's going to be good. I'm looking forward to that. But um, the series is called Your Friend, Your Foe, Your Choice, and um, today is called Confessions of a Friend of God Wannabe. This morning, as I was having breakfast downstairs, uh, I wasn't thinking about the sermon. I probably should have been at that point. But I wasn't really thinking about the sermon. I was just thinking about nothing. Um, And uh, this sentence came to me. And I believe it was of the Lord. You can judge. That's what you come to church to do. This is not the no judgment zone. We invite you to come and judge. The Bible says, one is to prophesy, others are to judge. So welcome, you can be a critic today. Uh, This sentence came to me and it just hit me so profoundly that I ran upstairs and wrote it down. The world makes no sense unless there is an empowered Satan, victimized humans, a God who is on the side of humans, engaging with humans to make the world right and reconcile the world to himself. To me, that tells me the story of the life of Abraham. Today we're going to visit his Moriah moment. Moriah was just a few feet from, a, few, a couple of miles from Mount Calvary. And there he pantomimed the act that would bring our Savior to, to prominence in our lives. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am he replied. Then God said take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. We actually had a a man in the first service named Abraham and his son's name Isaac. So I told him don't read this text to your son. So we don't know how old old Isaac was. Uh, We know he wasn't a child. Uh, He was probably a teenager, or maybe even a young adult. We believe Abraham was about 125 years old at this point. So, I mean, I I thought I would that Abraham might be an encouragement to you, Jim. Uh, He's (laughs) so there may be a future for you. I don't know that 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 God has that we can never imagine, right? (laughs) Because he was 99 when he had his child. So, anyway, we know, we know he was uh, uh, robust, and, and Isaac I'm talking about, because he said, the, the, go down to verse 6 of church, chapter 22, he said he laid the wood on him, so, and it was a three to four day journey. So Isaac's carrying the wood for three to four days through the wilderness and up the mountain. So this couldn't have been a, a, little, a little small child. This had to be at least had an adult-sized body. So we're going to jump over to James chapter 2, verse 20, which, which brings us to the point that this sacrifice caused God to say, Abraham is my friend. It moved Abraham to a status with God that was intimate, special, where God could say, that's my guy. James chapter 2, verse 20. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was it not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled. It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for, as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. Now, a lot of times we say, "Well, nobody's perfect." We we say, uh, I, "I'm I'm on a journey, but I'm not there yet," and that should truly be the truth. But in relationship with God, we never reach perfection, but we can reach maturity, and that's what this represents. This represents. Abraham reaching the full maturity as a man of God when he was willing to do what God asked him to do, even when it made no sense and it was hard. So today, as we continue to use Abraham as an exhibit A in this matter of friendship with God, I want to anchor this message, the confession of a friend of God wannabe, in the story that I've just read to you, which gives you a preview of the later, ultimate offer of divine friendship. Friendship that Christ gave us on the cross but also that offer of divine friendship that God gave Abraham to offer his only son as a sacrificial offering on Mount Moriah God was giving him a chance to be really special and Abraham didn't blow it Mount Moriah was as I said a short distance from Mount Calvary where Christ died for our sins and it teaches us some really important principles about what it takes what it means and why it's important to be a friend of God In the church world, we have clung to the benefit of faith to give us a heavenly home, which we should, by the way. I'm all for that. But we've dismissed faith as being central to our earthly purpose and our earthly flourishing and the earthly flourishing of the community that we live in. Uh, Back a few months ago, I ran across an article in... uh, uh, somewhere it, it, it was actually came from Scientific American. I don't sit around reading Scientific American, but uh, but that's where it was. And the title of the article was "Psychiatry Needs to Get Right with God." And it's based on um, a study did by McLean Hospital in Belmont, McLean Hospital Psychiatric Hospital uh, about s- mental health and. Sp- and God and spirituality. And they interviewed 1,500 people for the study. And they discovered, oh, what a big shock. They found out that people who are having psychiatric trauma and disorders get better when the psychiatrist talks to them about God and their spirituality. And they get better, more likely, and more often when they believe in God. And of course, all the psychiatrists who were on the staff at McLean said, well, that." That's above our pay grade. We can't talk about God. And so now they have a whole separate department at McLean Hospital. It's, it's the, I don't know what the acronym stands for, but, the, but it's, the acronym is SPIRIT, S-P-I-R-I-T. And they have a whole staff designed, ordained, put in place to talk to people about faith and their spirituality as a means of improving their mental health. You see, as we have increased technology, we've increased mental illness. In fact, the mass shooters, one of the things they should be instructive to us is something's really wrong with us in America. Something's really wrong with our culture right now. And the simple answer is what Alexander Solzhenitsyn tried to tell us Back in nineteen, I think nineteen eighty seven when he spoke at Harvard University. And he was immediately dismissed by everyone. All the intellectuals dismissed him and he never had a voice in America again after that speech. When he said, We've forgotten God. Simple. He said, You're doing what the Soviet Union did, you've forgotten God. So, we're not gonna worry about the culture though, we're complaining about the culture because you and God are a majority. You know that? You and God are a majority. I read that on a note. Now, you know how I know that? Because my dad used to sit and read and think. My dad, he would, he, he would be lost in thought. And then he would come out of it and he would write notes. I guess it's where I got it. <laughs> and uh, one of his little notes one day is, The Mighty Minority. And I read it and it was all about if any two agree is touching thing, it will be done by Father, which is in heaven, you know. So I told you at the beginning of the first sermon, I told you we should do three things to have a friendship with God. Understand what friendship with God is not. It's not an event. You ask a lot of people, do you know Jesus? Yes, I was born again and such a day. Well, it's not an event. It's a relationship. It's not an imaginary friend or mental construct for emotional support like a fetish or a, or a talisman or a good luck charm. It's not a partnership with a wizard who magically transports you over the ravines in dark spaces of life into the mountain of God's glory. No, I also told you that friendship with God was God's way for all of us, not just a few select heroes of the faith. That it's God's intention for every person in this room. Thirdly, uh, I well, let, let me give you the verse that I used. I don't want your sacrifices, the Lord said. I want your love, and that was in the Old Testament. I don't want your offerings, I want you to know me, Hosea 6, 6. Number three, I told you that you must decide whose friendship you want most. God will not be second chair in your orchestra. In fact, he will not play in your orchestra, he will be the conductor. Scripture says to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy with God, and we explained in that message that, that that seems contradictory, when you read that in the scripture that it says to be a friend of the world is enemy with God is to be an enemy of God. When John 3.16 says God so loved the world. And 1 John says love not the world. Neither the things are in the world. So what's the, what's the deal here? Is God confused? Did he change his mind? He's, is, he, is he a progressive God? <laughs> Do we have a progressive God on our hands? Who just evolves from one belief to the next? No. Love not the world means something different than God so loved the world When God so loved the world, it means the people of the world Love not the world means the values of the world So that's what we talked about So, let's get to the message today Three aspirations of mine, this is a personal message today Three three aspirations of mine that have not only helped me experience a real God in the real world in real time but they have been anchors for me through the tumultuous shifting sands of life and culture Okay? Some of this is going to be counterintuitive to how you normally think. It may be even counter, counter your theological training and beliefs and upbringing. But here we go. You ready? Yep. Confessions of a wannabe friend of God. Number one I want God to like me. There are two passages of scripture that have guided my philosophy about my relationship with God for a long time. And I'll include Sherry in this because she's she, this would be what she would say as well. I don't know if these two verses. She's, she's the first one I've heard her quote. And I'm going to, I'm going to quote it again in the sermon in a little bit. But it's in Ephesians. I believe it's Ephesians 5.10. Find out what pleases the Lord. The second verse is They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. You know the rest. And the picture I got of that verse one day was not of someone who's waiting on God for an answer, which I know that's proper, that we wait on God for answers. Not someone who was waiting on God to take care of them, but someone who was waiting on God in the way a waiter waits on a customer at a restaurant, the way a servant waits on their their boss or master, waiting on God. What would you like, sir? Are you you ordering an appetizer? How about dessert? Do you need anything? Abraham had a 46-year relationship with God, but it was at the conclusion of that Moriah moment that God called him friend. It was at that time that God said, I really like that guy. See, some of us are just satisfied to know that God loves us. But you know what? I never think about whether God loves me. I never think about it. I am... con—I am... Well, first of all, it's that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So... <laughs> and also, I just think... I, think this is, I just think I'm pretty special. Sure, sure, he loves me. Of course. Who wouldn't? <laughs> of course... I really, honestly, I never think about even when I blow it. Even when I blow it. Even when I raise my voice, my, my wife and, and i patient with my kids and, you know, slam my fist on the steering wheel because it's something you as a church member did. Even when I do that, I never think, oh, I wonder if God loves me now. No, I, I never think about it. Does God love me? But does God like me? Ah, That's what I want. I want God. I want God to say, "That's my bud. That's my friend, Phil. We're like this." That's what I want. Do I always live like that? No, I didn't say that. I don't always live like that. Every, but every day I think about it. I I saw this uh, note uh, written, and uh, uh, Sheila Ray Gregoire is a, a writer, lady writer. And uh, and you're going to laugh, but she writes about sexual sex. sex. She writes about sex a lot, and I I don't read her stuff. Okay, I just I don't I don't read that. But I would be okay if I did. It would be nothing wrong if I did. I just don't right. And uh, so I wasn't researching that subject when I found this letter that a lady wrote her. And I don't know how it came up in a search, but I was researching for this sermon. But here's what this woman writes Sheila Ray, I think it's pronounced Grigori. She said, Here's what I've been taught I'm a sinner saved by grace, which means there's nothing I can never do to make God love me any more or less. All my best efforts are so tainted with sin that they're disgusting to God. I am the lost sheep, the prodigal son, the worst of all sinners, and should be overflowing with the gratitude that God loves me anyway not because of who I am, but because of when he looks at me, he sees Jesus because Jesus took my place. I just feel worthless. It's the equivalent of my husband only being able to make love to me if he imagines I'm someone else. I don't want God to love me just because it's in the nature as a loving God. I want him to accept me even though I'm really not worth it. I want him to like me. I want want to make him smile, not in the patronizing way that some analogies use of me being his toddler daughter who makes him smile when she paints a messy picture. Don't get me wrong. I accept that God loves me through grace, and I am grateful for his acceptance, but I don't want to stay there. I want God to be genuinely pleased with me, the actual me, and not to cast me aside to look at Jesus instead because that's the only way he can stomach me. And she goes, is that really so wrong? And Sheila Greger, I'm sure she's a great person and loves the Lord and and, and has some good theology, but she totally blew it. She told the woman, you have a wrong view of God. And I said, no, that is not a wrong view of God. Because I see it in the scripture, I see it. I see in Revelation chapter three, verse fifteen and sixteen, when God looks at the church at Laodicea, He says, "Because you're not neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. I feel like throwing up every time I look at you." I think God wasn't liking them that day. I just think, I just think it wasn't happening. You know, and 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 then I see where He He sends the angel Gabriel to to to. Mary, the mother of Jesus, would be the mother of Jesus and says, "Oh, highly favored one. Uh, now when someone says that, that means that, that means there was a few thousand people who weren't favored. that <laughs> she she won the lottery. <laughs> she was the one that he favored. and, 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 and then I go uh, to that verse that I said later, Find out what pleases the Lord. So there must be some people who never worry about pleasing the Lord. And apparently through Abraham, we see that God really likes people who want to please him. You're looking at me like (laughs) I'm blowing it. (laughs) Well, let's go to Job 1. I know that was pre-crucifixion and some people believe anything that Happened before the crucifixion is not valid, but but I've already covered that because I went to Revelation. So we went past the crucifixion. Let's go before the crucifixion, uh, Job chapter one verse six. One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser Satan came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked. Satan answered. The Lord, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Well, that that should give you chills. <laughs> I've been patrolling the illegal. Uh, then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in the earth. So let that sink in for a minute. He, 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 there was probably a neighbor of Job that wasn't the finest man on earth, in God's view. But God said to Job, Do you See my guy Job? He's pretty awesome. <laughs> He's the finest. He's the finest man on earth. Uh, He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a, I wonder what God wants curiosity in your life? You look at James 2. If you follow James 2, it begins with honoring those who are lesser. Then it talks about sharing your material goods with the poor. That, that's, that's another way you demonstrate faith. Because so it's all about faith. It's all about demonstrating faith, demonstrating faith through obedience. And th- then, then uh, he talks about Abraham offering his son Isaac. And, and before that, he had talked about faith without deeds is dead. It's about putting our faith, finding ways to put our faith into action. And then he talks about uh, Rahab the harlot who had, in, in obedience to God, had risked her own life to save other people's lives. And sometimes we get hung up on one or the other. Like you may have a real, you may have a real, uh, like a compassion and, 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 and the, the, the idea of people being hungry, for instance. That really gets you right here, people being hungry so you want to feed hungry people and, and that's good, that's very noble uh, but uh, you know I participated one time in a program for so feeding the hungry and there were no hungry but the people in that program had no other passion so we continued this feeding program that no one was showing up for because everyone, no one in, in our town was hungry and walk around, does anybody look hungry? so the key in pleasing God is not to find out only what your passion is but the key to pleasing God is ask him what he wants Amen. the key to pleasing God is be curious about what God is putting in your path today I mean there may not be a, a poor hungry person today but there may be a, a rich lonely person in this meeting today in this room right now that you need to go take them out to lunch not because they can't afford to take themselves to lunch, but because they are alone in the world. For Sherry and I, our ministry life has been guided by this, this idea. I wonder what God would like. It really has. Now, like I said, we, I don't have to say we're not perfect, because you know that a lot. Right. Or we always live like this every month. But overall in our lives. And so I want to give you, for Sherry and I, uh, three or four, I'm going to throw them up on the screen, three or four uh, principles, I guess you could call them, or, or, or ideas that have guided our, our ministry life decisions. Number one, our, our decisions have never been based on the salary. We have never, ever based a decision about ministry, where we were going to do ministry, how we are going to do ministry, When I asked Sherry to take over Compassion New England, there was no conversation about the salary. We gave her a raise right away and she gave it back. Why would you live for money when you can live for God? That makes no sense. The Bible says God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, God owns everything. Why would you live for money when you can live for God? So, for us, salary was never... There's nothing wrong with negotiating salary, by the way. I'm not condemning you for that. Do the best you can. You know, get all the money you can. Go, go for it. But stop and ask what God wants. Secondly, our decisions have never been based on our in-group's opinion. You know, um... Uh, what, what, what is, what is, what is uh, I, I, well I'll say this, I'll say this, my mother and, uh, and father in are here this morning, I call them mom and dad, mom and dad are here and they've been so fantastic about never pressuring us to, to be here or there or anywhere because it was their desire because they had to be close to their grandchildren. and So, so in-group decision has never been how we've made decisions about what we were going to do with our lives. I mean, we got to be close to this person or close to that person or what do, what do our friends think or what, do our, what does our family think? God is God. You know, the third thing I would say uh, about us is our decisions have never been based on overpowering personal emotions. You know, Americans have raised feelings to the level of irresistible force. It, it's never been uh, uh, about, you know, Okay, winters in New England. I just want to confess, I hate winters in New England. I'm in denial every year. I can't believe it's going to happen again. In, in fact, until five or six years ago, I never bought the appropriate clothes or dressed appropriately. I would wear shoes that water could get into. I didn't, I didn't understand the layering thing I, because I, I was in denial every year that it was actually go, this is actually going to happen again. It's going to be cold again. That's ridiculous. And I'm telling you, New England boiled dinners were never my idea of a great meal. (laughs) You, You want to eat some food? Go to Texas with me. I'll show you some food. I'm not here because I like New England. Oh, I just love, I just want to live in Massachusetts. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I told you this is a confessions of a wannabe friend of God. <laughs> I'm just be real with you. Our decisions have never been based on desirable geographical locations. And I understand what's happening right now. A lot of Christians, a lot of Christians I'm talking to, their dream is to move to, a, to one of the free states. <laughs> they want to go live under the reign of King DeSantis. <laughs> Life would be good if they could do that. And I'm not, you know, I know I'm making somebody really upset right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because I have conversations with you. I know that's what we talk, what's what talk about. Because somehow, if you could just move to Tennessee, or... Alabama, man, that would be like. I'm going to eternity with God. I don't know about you. I'm, I'm, I'm on my way to eternity with God. I, and, and I'm not, you know, if God leads you to, to move to Tennessee, I'm not, it's none of my business. I'm getting way out of the area of my business of your personal decisions with your life. But it is my business to teach you that the highest value in your life and the highest goal that you could ever have is to live where God wants you to live. And it's the most fulfilling life you will ever have to be where God wants you to be. I love living in New England because it's the will of God for my life. That's why I love living in New England. Number two, I want God to need me. You know it's impossible to love or be loved by someone who doesn't need you. Most of us are totally ignorant about the vulnerability of God. God doesn't need us in a material sense. But in an emotional sense, we're made in the image of God. So that means in an emotional sense, he desires my presence. Emotional and a missional sense. In the missional sense, God God calls for our help, our partnership, our presence. He calls for it. And see, there's a spiritual reality that says we love what we're invested in. So God wants me to love him. And one of the ways he teaches me to love him is by revealing to me his needs for me and what he needs me to do for him. You know, Matthew 6:21. Where your treasure is there, will your heart be also. So God, So God gives me this chance to invest my life in Him. And when I invest my life in Him, I love Him more. When I don't invest in Him, I love Him less. If you want to love God more, give money to His work. Because you're putting treasure. Give time, give service to His work. And your love for God will increase because you will have an investment. Parents who do everything for their children are always surprised when their children don't love them. But why would they love you when you make them feel stupid and unnecessary? You're made to feel loved when you're made to feel needed. And God loves me. (laughs) So he calls me to service, to serve him and sacrifice for him. There's a spiritual reality that also says... We love what we're invested in. And I'm sorry, I, 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 that's the first point. The second, there's a practical way. The first is spiritual, this is practical. And I talked about this last week, and we, it was in this statement that I read in the beginning. There's a practical reality that we gave, we gave our authority to the managers of the planet, we gave our authority to be managers of the planet to the opposer, Satan. And with God's help, we have to get it back see the Bible says this gospel must be preached to all nations God doesn't preach angels don't preach only humans preach God said I'm putting on you to fulfill the great commission and bring the world back to me I love this point it makes me feel very important (laughs) it makes me feel very significant how many of you like feeling significant man I like feeling significant right And if you will get in God's program, you won't have any self-esteem problems because God's going to need you all the time to do really great things. You won't have any self-worth problems if you will give your life totally to God. I guess that didn't go over so well. (laughs) Number three, finally, I want to say this. I want God to trust me. Abraham's Moriah moment was when Abraham knew that he had become a man that God could trust. It's, see, it's, it's, it's a false idea that Abraham offered Isaac because that's what the pagans did. And Hebrews eleven 17, I'll read in a minute, proves that to me. The Moriah moment meant the more Abraham trusted God, the more God could trust Abraham. And that's what it was really all about. Maybe not all about, but much about. Hebrews eleven seventeen 17 says, It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promise, was ready to sacrifice his only son, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendant will be counted. Now, I want you to let this next sentence sink in. It's an amazing sentence. Because a lot of people think that turning your life over to God and surrendering your will to his and not living for your own expressive individualism and pleasure, a lot of people think it's like throwing yourself off the cliff and, and consigning yourself to a life of oppression and misery. It's the opposite. It's a paradox. You, you know what a paradox is, right? The opposite. It's the opposite. It's the kingdom of God. Here's what it's that last sentence. Abraham reasoned. That if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. Wow. You know, God didn't need Abraham to sacrifice Isaac to save the world, but He needed him to be willing. The ram in the thicket, of course, represents. And I didn't read that part, but He goes to sacrifice him. And if you haven't read the story, all of a sudden. An angel taps when on the shoulder. And looks up, and there is a ram caught in the thicket, and that was the sacrifice. So the ram in the thicket represents how Jesus get. I hope I hope you get this, and I hope it means, you know. Sometimes I will make notes and get up to preach them, and I realize a couple of things happen sometimes. Sometimes I realize it it looked better at my desk than it did it when I get up here. That's one revelation I get sometimes. Boy, that looked good when I was writing it. And another revelation I get is, uh, well, I think it means a lot more to me than it does you. But, uh, so I get really, you know, I get really excited about this stuff. because This is real to me. I mean, this is is my life. I'm not just trying to build a church. I'm just sharing, and I think that's what, Authenticity is to me. It's when you deal with people and you relate to people, not out of some goal, but out of who you really are. And and that's what I try to do every Sunday. Is get up here and just pour out to you who I really am. And you know, to me, God can use that. But anyway. Uh, I hope this makes sense to you. When Abraham went through this pantomime of offering his son on the altar of sacrifice, and because God stopped him from doing it, because God never ever would promote child sacrifice. But God needed him to do that, and when he did it, the ancient world could now see, they could now see what God's plan was for the world. So that ram in the thicket represents how Jesus gets revealed to the world when God can trust us to do whatever he asks us to do. Jesus gets revealed to the world when you are willing to make sacrifices. Amen. And sometimes God accepts the sacrifice. He wants, if it's your child, even if you feel like sacrificing them, Don't. he's not going to let you do it, Right? There's a line in a hymn uh, we know as "Oh Happy Day." Anybody remember when that was a hit song back in the late '60s? Edwin Hawkins, Terrain Hawkins, did this song called "Oh Happy Day," you know, and um, uh, it made a big hit. It was number four on the uh, American pop charts, and it was number one in the European pop charts. And uh, that song, here's here was the words to that song that made the hit. And I think they're going to go up on the wall for you. Happy day, happy day when Jesus washed my sins away. He taught me how to watch and pray and live rejoicing every day. Happy day, happy day. And that was, that was it. Uh, I actually went to a concert and heard them do that song. And I'm, I still remember what a sensual place that was. It was not godly at all. It was the most ungodly environment. I think I've ever been in, and they're saying, Oh, happy day when Jesus... And it, it was totally pagan. The whole evening was pagan. And I didn't think about it until this week. I was studying for the sermon, and I thought about that song, and I thought about, well, there must be more to that song. And I, so I looked it up. The song was written between 1702 and 1721 by a man named Philip Doddridge. He was an English nonconformist minister, meaning he descended from the Church of England. And uh, the, the original title, listen this. The original title was Rejoicing in Our Covenant Engagement with God. And you're going to see it in a minute, it had a lot more words. Words that the Edwin Hawkins singers left out. <laughs> see, I'm enjoying this too much. And you're just like looking at me. <laughs> He wrote to amplify what he was teaching his congregation in England. And that song became a standard that they sang during baptismals and confirmation ceremonies. And here's how the rest of the song went. Tis done the great transactions done. I am the Lord's and he is mine. He drew me and I followed on rejoicing in the call divine. Philip Doddridge was... Focused on a covenant engagement with God. Can that can you absorb that today? Now rest my long divided heart, fixed on the blissful center rest. Here have I found a nobler part. Here heavenly pleasures fill my breast. High heaven that hears the solemn vow, that vow that renewed shall daily hear. This guy was writing about a daily consecration to God with his life he wasn't just writing about a happy day when Jesus washed his sins away now that that is a happy day by the way that's an amazing happy day and I don't want to take anything away from your excitement about that day but what if it's also good news that there's more That vow renewed shall daily hear till in life's latest hour I bow, and blessed in death a bond, a bond so dear. So, here's my conclusion. How many of you are hungry for a relationship with God that is more than just an insurance policy from hell? How many of you are hungry for something more? How many of you are hungry for what it would be like to have a life where every day you're waking up and you're saying, I wonder what God wants me to do today. I wonder what he has for me. I wonder what, where I could invest for him today. That's what I'm inviting you to. And, and, and let's go back to Abraham for a minute. Because a lot of us think, if I do that, my life's going to be over. But no, Abraham experienced the resurrection. Isaac's life, you think Isaac went went and backslid after that? You think Isaac went and lived just a loose, immoral life? After walking three days up a mountain, carrying the word, being this close to death? And miraculously, God providing a sacrifice? Do you think that boy was ever the same after that? I not only want to be transformed, I want my children to be transformed. I want them to know there's a God that answers prayer. I want them to know that there's a God that you could take a job that gets paid less money, but God miraculously meets your needs. I want them to grow up. I want them to grow up with a resurrection faith. You can only have that when you're willing to start doing what God wants you to do. You'll blow it once sometimes. You won't always do it. You're human. That's what, that's what grace is for, man. Not, this is not about some sinless perfection. But it is about a mature view of who God is and who you can be when you give your life to Him. Let's pray. Now, this morning as we get ready to pray you know I often talk about crossing the line of faith and admittedly when I talk about that I'm talking about putting faith in Christ as your Savior and I have no apologies for that but that line of faith if you go to Romans 10 90, 10 the verses that we always use we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord that Jesus is Lord it, it, any, anybody who read that in the first century knew that was that meant you were the servant and he was the Lord and so in the confession of faith was not just a a purchase of the resurrection your future resurrection but it was also the line of consecration so if you're here this morning and you haven't crossed the line of consecration that's what I want you to invite you to cross this morning the line of consecration as Pastor Phil I'm going to give my life to God. I'm going to give my will to God. I'm going to give everything I have. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead. He is Lord. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray, Lord, for the people in this room, that one or two or three or four or five or six people who've never crossed the line of consecration. They believe in you. And they pray to you. And I'm so happy that they do. But let them know There's a life of power and faith and action and a life of bringing redemption to themselves and others that is like nothing you could ever, ever not want to experience because it's so good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
1: Amen. Um. Any of us in this room that have children, you, you, if you think about this message as it relates to your kids, it makes so much sense to think about how, you know, my unconditional, as long as I remain mentally, emotionally, relatively healthy person, my love for my kids, my unconditional love for them, it came the day they were born and it will never change. But my like for my children is extremely variable my enjoyment of my children. And you know, so much of it, they are in control. And my husband does a great job of, he'll say to my kids all the time, do you want your parents to like you? Do you want your parents to enjoy being around you? And you know, God, it's the same with God. His love for you, his grace for you, his forgiveness of you is, was settled on the cross in that moment. But on a day-to-day basis, you have so much control to wake up in the morning and live to please him, choose actions that glorify him, take his word and use it as a guide for what you do with your time and your attitude, right? Um, so, it, the, the, like he said, that crossing that line of faith, that moment of accepting salvation is a beautiful thing, but there is so much more. And there, you, you are in such a position of control of what your relationship with God looks like and, and what he, how he feels about you. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for coming to church today and listening um, and being hearers of God's word. We pray that this message blessed you and it helps you in your life as you walk with God.